Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Three people and you're going to have four weeks do something. (laughs) It started out of pure stubbornness, which is great. (laughs) Without necessarily meaning to, I think we found this quite interesting niche. No, we did some stuff, and the fact that it's invisible means it works. <laughs> I think art is encoded knowledge and uh, experience. At that time, we were really fascinated by the whole transmedia concept. That was it, not the time-travelling robot idea that we had. Hello, and welcome to Technique. I am Sam Fry, and this is the podcast where we speak to artists about technology. It's the last episode of 2019. In fact, it's the last episode of the century, which is pretty crazy to think about. I hope you are all looking forward to the festive period and the new year. But don't go away anywhere just yet, as we've got a great episode for you. Those that listened to the last episode might remember that it included audio from a series of talks by artists on the topic of artificial intelligence, recorded at IBM in London as part of an event run by Lumen Art Projects. I mentioned that those were just some of the talks from the day, but that one talk was missing. So... In today's episode, I am delighted to introduce you to an award-winning artist who spoke at the event about her work with light. Specifically, this artist is interested in achieving this. Expanding the apparatus around light and space to really engage people's emotions and imagination. The voice that you just heard is Maya Petrix. Maya is an artist that creates interactive light installations and sculptures. She's interested in how light appears in nature, especially its ability to evoke the sublime. Maya has essentially come to recognise that everyone has an innate connection with the environment, so she uses natural light effects in her work to create an emotional response. Her work is amazing and powerful to look at, Yet, she didn't start out thinking that she would be an artist. Her beginnings were in theatre. Here she is explaining how she transitioned towards the world of art and technology. I actually started in theatre. So I was passionate about physical theatre in high school. And I was determined to, to make that my career. I could not get into the theatre academy in Croatia, so I started my own theatre company. Uh, while I was studying something else. So this theatre company was a physical theatre group that would perform in the public spaces and really respond to those public arenas. During that time, I got a scholarship to study in the US, so I moved to the US, and I wanted to collaborate further with my partner in Croatia. And this was in 2001, and I thought, well, maybe I could learn a little bit about video and use internet so we can uh, both create performances that could be put together as teleperformance. So I would perform against the wall in New York and she would perform against the wall in Zagreb and then we would project each other's images in real time. 
And then I realized, wow, well, I actually, I'm interested in creating experiences and maybe it's easier to do that with technology than relying on the institution of theatre. So today's episode focuses on the work of Maya Petrick. As with the last episode, it is the recording of a presentation that was given with slides. Yet I believe it works as an audio talk too. Still, to help, I'll give the context every now and then of what Maya is showing throughout the episode. To start her talk, Maya talked about one of her early works, which was called Outside In. It was created in a New York subway tunnel. Here she is explaining the work and how she simulated natural light. This would be one of the first artworks of that kind. Well, not this, this is not an artwork, this is the location uh, of the artwork that I did in 2006 for New York City Subway's 191st Street metro station. And it's known as the most horrible New York City subway station. (laughs) And that says a lot since all of them are quite remarkably bad. It's also called the Tunnel of Doom. It's used by the metro, but owned by the city, and therefore nobody really wants to clean it. It's quite deep, it's 180 feet below the street level, 330 feet long, so you have to really pass through it and, and to get to your station and be subjected to this atmosphere. So one of my first projects uh, utilizing light as a mean of transforming the experience of space was for this location. And I was really uh, guided by the notion that this is such a deep underground space that is devoid of any life. And I thought it would be relevant to seep the outside in. And I was quite inspired by this phenomenon, so-called God's light respiral rays where sunlight appears to radiate through the clouds from one point in the sky where the sun is located and I was interested in in doing that in this location through the interactive medium. So the installation entailed a false ceiling that appeared to be cracked and a combination of artificial light and fog simulated the natural effect of light emanating from the sky and light was programmed to imitate the color of the light outside. So when the weather outside was foggy, the light inside would be grayish, and the light would change if the the weather outside was, let's say, sunny, and you would have this warm, orangey feel, and so on. I was interested in really seeing how this somewhat minimal intervention in this large space can change the atmosphere of the entire tunnel and also how the dynamic connection between the the reality of the outside and what we perceive as as natural um, to be illustrated. It was one of the first projects that I, I did of this kind and I kept on working on this concept that utilizes cracks and and light and mimicking the sunlight and evoking this relationship we have with the the natural light. And this work is called As It Is Cracking and it was situated in seemingly ordinary empty white room. And this room had a wall that would crack over the course of eight hours. So behind the wall there was lights and video designed to again simulate something that we can recognize as natural light and have some sort of emotional connection to nature. 
So you can see here three instances from, from that installation. It would change ongoingly and it would have a, an interactive component where when somebody would come very close to the, to the wall, there would be a sudden flash of lightning and the whole room would be washed in, in white light. So it cracked over the course of eight hours. I used this mixture of dry material that kind of would fall apart during one day and slowly disclose the light that was on the other side. Another piece that is, again, trying to evoke the sense of sublime found in nature is Horizon is an imaginary line. It is an immersive light and sound installation that transforms the experience of amphitheater where this piece was situated into a poetic experience of nature. But uh, it starts in a very abstract form. So basically, the whole space was filled with haze. And I would be uh, using high-intensity projectors to create sculptures made of light that people would inhabit. And these were very abstract sculptures. So they would be just cones, very simple shapes that people could be inside of. And then those shapes would change form around them. So you would be standing inside of the cone that would become almost like a cube and so on. But over time, they would evolve in something that is more recognize recognizable as organic nature. Or at least somebody said in this last image that it felt more like a, not like a rain, but more, it felt more like a rain than the real rain. And for me, that was the goal, to create this super real sensation of nature and kind of evoke the, the relationship we have with nature and emotion connected to that, not just to mimic nature. So this, these are the type of inquiries that I keep on working with throughout my work. And I sometimes work on a smaller scale because installations are hard to realize and then you kind of need to take them down as soon as they are, the exhibition is done. So at times I work on a smaller scale with so-called light sculptures that are also dynamic in nature and they use algorithmic light compositions. So this is a series of light art boxes that are made to depict abstracted atmosphere of landscapes such as here, Aurora Borealis, here from sea to mountain, and I'll show you some others from, that are depicting different parts of nature. And these are using algorithmic lighting, but they are also using these optical materials that create a sense of depth. So I'm layering them and creating a sculpture that you can walk around and experience changing uh, depending on the view of, of looking at it. And basically, they are behaving like things in nature there also evolving over time. Throughout the talk up to this point, Maya is showing dramatic images of scenery where light intervenes with the work. Each of her pieces uses light in some way, often with sound or other technology to accompany it. Yet she is also interesting for her work with technology companies. Maya has worked and produced interactive environments for companies like Microsoft, Google and others, not just for galleries or in public spaces. She talks a little here about what it can be like to work with large companies, where there are great opportunities and potentially some new technology that's available to experiment with. Yet, 
Sometimes the briefs from these companies are a little bit odd. In this case, the room that she was asked to create an artwork in is a traditional office meeting room. She shows us pictures. It's not necessarily somewhere you would expect to see art. Three years ago, I uh, was an artist in residence at Microsoft Research, and they presented me with some of their technologies that they were developing and asked me to think of a, a artistic application. And I worked on this project where I implemented some of the Room Alive kit that they worked on, and which is an interactive projection system that understands the surfaces in the room and projects to those surfaces. So basically, they gave me this lovely room, uh, the first image uh, on the left, and they said, create the sublime experience of nature. So I basically covered the, the carpet, and I created one visual narrative by using all the surfaces in the room. And this piece, besides having this interactive component, it's also utilizing video and the light qualities that are extracted from the projection to create the atmosphere of being really part of this ever-changing sky space. And there is a narrative around it where you are, you know, witnessing and being part of the sun rising, hearing birds, and then slowly that environment being interrupted by the lightning, rain washing over the space, and at some point, the level of the water is rising in the room, and it's really feeling like you're being submerged. And at the end, there is a release where one is supposed to be elevated in the emotional cloud space. And it was really an experiment of what can we do with these technologies and the beautiful conference room. The result is pretty amazing, as the work takes you well away from the normal office environment to somewhere completely different. At this point, Maya refers to a piece of work that she had discussed the previous day at the Lumen Prize for Art and Technology, where she won an award. The work is called We Are All Made of Light, and it's an immersive art installation about people's interconnectedness. The installation utilizes interactive light, spatial sound, and artificial intelligence. The effect is that people can explore this large space and see themselves meshed alongside hints of previous visitors who have been recorded and are being played back. I'd suggest looking up We Are Made Of Light on her website, which is mayapetrick.com, as there are some wonderful videos. Here she is talking about the project. This is the project we talked about last night. We are all made of light. Basically, it's an immersive art installation that is using AI and spatial sound and interactive light to, again, emulate the constellation in which each person is one among the stars. I'm interested in using these new technologies to really expand the narrative, to create the ever-changing experience. So there is a framework around the piece, and it's consistent of, uh, in this case, many video compositions that are all part of this larger story about the starscape, some sort of impressionistic depiction of, of being immersed in, in, in space. And these parts, these videos, are being configured in a different order, in different lengths, and they're playing different parts depending on people who are in the space and so on. And so we have a framework that is 
pretty on the topic of the piece, but it's always changing. And that's something that is very exciting to me and afforded by these new technologies. And the sound is done in the same way by James Venlock. It's a generative sound that is, again, just like the sky. You kind of can expect certain type of layout here, especially it's kind of, you know, grayish, but uh, you never really know how it's gonna be rendered. You really don't know the, the layout of every single cloud. And, and that diversity from day to day, from moment to moment, is what makes the organic richness and, and what I'm trying to evoke in my work. So the AI system was developed by uh, Mihai Jalabenu in collaboration with me. And it's a set of cameras that recognize people in space. They detect their bodies and record them in the space in a very abstracted silhouette form. And these silhouettes play back depending on what is happening in the space. And also, they're being played back in the real time for the most part. We also have a system that processes people's image into, into the silhouettes filled with stars. And these stars are constantly changing. So you're, if you see yourself made of stars, you will see your configuration also evolving over time. And what's very interesting to me is recognizing how many people are in the space and to some degree we can recognize what they are doing and respond in to that. So we are we are playing in response other silhouettes based on some basic things that we are recognizing in the space. And that's something that I want to develop further and engage with people on a little bit more personal level. What's very interesting for me and I find quite successful in, in this work way we connect to the silhouette of ourselves is kind of obvious. We like to look at ourselves. But the way we relate to other people and the way we can recognize people that we know. So for instance, my parents came to visit me and see the piece that was being exhibited in Seattle all the way from Croatia. And they left. And two weeks later, three months later, I would see them in this space. Their silhouettes would be present. And I made the piece, so I kind of know the, the apparatus. But still, it was, it was something that emotionally would impact me each time. And that's something that I want to be exploring further, how to make these connections, how to, how to engage deeper with people by means of technology that this could not have been done before without these digital tools. This is another piece, an interactive light installation of projected stars in the forest in, in Redmond, Washington. Uh, so visitors passing through the fog-filled forest could glance upon and find themselves immersed in a constellation of projected stars. The number of stars would equal the number of people living in the Washington state. And whenever a baby was born somewhere in the country, uh, in the state, a burst of red light would appear above them. And when somebody would die, in real time, or according to the data I would receive, there would be a blue light explosion um, happening in, in, the, in, in the space. I'm trying to connect with the notion that we are coming and going and part of this natural world in that way. So uh, a big theme for me has been this relationship we have with nature. I rely on that because I think it's this very universal theme. All of us are biologically programmed to have some kind of emotional connection to nature. 
I find it very interesting how people see the sky, how they consider the sky, and how they respond in life based on their, their relationship with the sky. And uh, when I was in Microsoft Research, I came across a researcher working on machine learning algorithms that were trying to epitomize data. So he was working with various kinds of data, such as looking through recipes and trying to understand what is the epitome of the recipes and having clouds of text symbolizing those recipes and so on. And I was interested in if we could use that algorithm to understand what would be the epitome of people's view of the sky. It's something that I'm very interested in my work to kind of tap into that, but I don't really have an insight in how you see the sky and so on. So I wanted to kind of investigate this subjective view through, through this algorithm. This was a project that was really browsing through internet and looking for, in this case, polar skies. And basically, it would use the mathematical systems to review all the images and analyze their salient properties and then summarize the data. The summary of the polar sky would be what you see on the far right. So basically, this was a sky that was representing what people perceived to be a typical polar sky. And it, it wasn't a collage. It was really looking at bits and pieces of all the found images and then creating out of it its own brush and painting this image which is kind of a stereotype of what the internet thinks the polar sky is. Still very interesting in my mind. And also it was interesting to see how it's evolving. I ended up presenting those with a person from that area looking into the distance and that they were also uh, found through internet search. And this is the epitome of Hawaiian sky, epitome of the sky in New Mexico. This is Francis Bacon looking at the Seattle sky. It's not true. This is a 9-11 sky. Uh, I kept on working with Nebusha Yoich, the researcher at Microsoft Research, more on this project. And we ended up developing a new iteration of the algorithm with which I generated this piece. It's called The Skies Epitomized of War and Peace. Here, I juxtapose what one sees gazing at the sky in the most peaceful countries of the world and the most conflicted areas of the world. So here you have an epitome of sky in Syria. And there are images of planes and Putin and Assad and so on. This is New Zealand. This is the universal sky and Iraq. I'm very interested in keep on evolving this uh, works that I, I, the latest works, we're all made of light. and. The, the AII, and finding new ways, furthering development of these technologies to, to create experiences and expressions that could not have been done without them. So that's the last bit of the talk that I wanted to share. I think Maya is a really interesting artist and her work is very powerful. If you want to find out more about her work and where to see it, go to mayapetrick.com. That's M-A-J-A-P-E-T-R-I-C.com. 
Thank you to Maya for giving this talk and for letting me use the audio in this episode. Thank you also to you for listening to this and the various other podcasts that we've created so far. We will be back again next month and we plan to have a more standard artist interview again, rather than one of these presentations. If you are listening to this and you believe we should speak to a particular digital artist, then get in contact. We are on Twitter at Technique UK. Otherwise, thanks again for listening and enjoy the New Year celebrations. See you in 2020. Otherwise, take very good care of yourself. Goodbye. Design thinking has exploded into the workplace of the 21st century, putting humans at the heart of design. Or does it? Isn't it just the post-it note workshops? More importantly though, where did it come from? How did it become such a massive industry? And where on earth is it going? Is design thinking what is taught in design schools? And can it be used as a philosophy for the future? Find out more as we, Richard Adams and Sam Fry, explore these ideas with experts in the field on our first Technique mini-series about design thinking. Subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode.